Open with me in your Bibles if you have one. Hopefully you do. If not, try to look off someone else. To the book of 1 Kings chapter 21. Uh, If you're a little unfamiliar with the Bible, that's okay. Hopefully you'll become familiar with your Bible. It's in the Old Testament, which is near the front. And uh, kind of flip through. You'll see a lot of different books. We're looking for 1 Kings, not 2 Kings. And chapter 21. If you're still having a hard time, there is a table of contents that's right in the front. Please take a few moments to just turn there and uh, find where we are. But we're in 1 Kings chapter 21. We'll be reading the entirety of the chapter today. It's a very long narrative. And it's our custom here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading of God's Word. So please stand with me as I do read the Word of the Lord. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So 1 Kings chapter 21. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let him bring a charge against him, saying, You you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of, this, of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they, they proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the table. And two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city, stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you from money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and will cut off from Ahab every male bonder free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat up Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. 
There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Blessed be to the reading and understanding of his word. You may be seated. Now, some of you, many of you with, uh, that are here today are parents. How many of you are parents? Raise your hand. Many of your parents. Now, how many of you have ridden or gone on a vacation with your children in the backseat of the car? For some, if, uh, you know, it could be a glorified form, I don't believe in it, but it's a you know, glorified form of parental purgatory, to be in a long-distance car with your children. And if you notice, during the car ride, at some period of time, you became your parents. Did you ever notice that when you're driving along? When you say, stop that, that starts off that way, stop it, stop it, I'm going to pull this car over, so help me, look at the road, Dad, whoa, you know, that kind of thing. And finally... They, they hit that last nerve. You know that when your kids have done that to you or your grandchildren? They finally have gone too far. And that's when you, you pull the car over. <laughs> enough is enough. We all know that as parents. We know that kids can test us, right? I mean, kids know how to push the limit. I'm amazed that these little itty-bitty things know how to get to us so quickly. They build up the layers of defense that we have manufactured over years and years. And somehow the little itty-bitty fingers know how just to get to us so quick. And finally, we just say enough is enough. And you know, not only do we do that, but God does that. Where He sees us continually persist in sin. We continually go back to sin. He gives us warnings. He speaks to us through His Word. When finally He says, enough is enough. In the last several weeks, we've been talking about Elijah, a man like us. And we learned that Elijah had come at a point in time when it was just spiritual bankruptcy. The, the nation of Israel was divided into two. You had the northern kingdom called the kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom called the kingdom of Judah. But then the, the northern kingdom just became apostate under its various wicked kings. And the most wicked of them all was the man that we just read about today, Ahab. Ahab had turned the whole nation into idolatry. And if we've rehearsed the story in just a little bit of uh, you know, reminder of what we've done, is that Elijah appeared to Ahab and said, it's not going to rain except in my word. And for three and a half years, that's exactly what happened. It didn't, it didn't rain. But do you think that softened Ahab's heart? No. He still obstinately held on to his idolatry. Of having something that was part of the creation, he tried to make it into the Creator. And it's not. And God sent t- warning to warning to him that he even had him confront, or Elijah confronted the 450 prophets of Baal, priests of Baal, which were, they were Ahab's guys. That was the religion that he had turned himself to. And they had a showdown on Mount Carmel. If you remember the story, fire came down from heaven that showing that Elijah was the true prophet of God. And those 450 prophets of Baal were killed. And then what happened was the great rain came. Remember, it was a complete drought in the land for three and a half years. It hadn't rained. Not at all. And here, God shows Himself to be the God of fire and the God of rain. Because Baal was considered to be the God of fire and the God of rain. But Elijah's act and his confrontation with Baal showed that Baal was considerably, it was an impotent being. 
no being at all. But God was the true God. And finally, God confronts through Elijah, enough is enough. After he goes to and tries to get this vineyard from Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now before we go further in our text, I'd like us to get, just by means, uh, to, get, to look at the entirety of Scripture to say, are there any other times where God says enough is enough? Because we know, and this, you can follow this, uh, write this down in your notes, that there are days, there will be days when God's patience has an end. Now this is seen throughout Scripture. We can see this in a variety of places. First, we can see that in celestial beings, the angels. We know that the angels, that God created the angels. They were creatures made to worship and serve Him. But Lucifer the light bearers, we see in the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, as well as Jesus' recollections and reflections on Lucifer himself, we know that he was a created being, Lucifer was. He was an angel that led the other angels in praise of God. But he turned, he became proud and sought worship for himself. So God cast him out of heaven because one-third of the angels rebelled with him. So God cast them out to earth where they became Satan and his demons. So God had a time of patience and he said, you know, no more for the celestial beings. But he also had the, his patience was exhausted during the time of Noah. So we see that civilization, God himself said that my time of patience has ended for civilization. When man had become so wicked upon the earth that God said, fine, I'm starting over. He brought the great flood and he saved Noah and his family through the great flood where all the inhabitants of the earth were killed. So his patience was exhausted not only for the celestial beings but for civilization and for a country. It can apply to a country. When the nation of Judah became apostate, and neglected God's word, judgment was on its way. It was, the word was rediscovered under the ministry of Josiah. And they sought to ascertain, they looked in the word and they said, wait, there's going to be punishment coming upon us for neglecting his word. Is it true? And they went to Huldah the prophetess who prophesied in Second Chronicles chapter 34, verse 24. She says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah. So we see that God's patience was exhausted not only for a country, but, uh, but for a city. There's a, a city, too. And we could think of Sodom and Gomorrah. They continued on in great wickedness, embracing homosexuality, carnality. It was a terrible time that God said, no more. I'm going to destroy the city. He even tells that. He reveals it beforehand to his servant Abraham. And Abraham has his nephew Lot, who's considered righteous, as the book of 1 Peter says, in the city. So he's scared for his nephew. And he says, shall, shall you uh, punish the guilty with the, right, or the righteous with the guilty? By no means. You wouldn't do that. He says, Lord, if there are 50 righteous persons in the city, will you spare it? He said, if there are 50 righteous persons, I will spare the city. And he says, Lord, let me just talk to you again. What about if there's 50 minus 5? What if there's 45? Will you, will you spare it? God's answer, yes, I'll spare it. What if there, Lord, if there are 40 people, would you spare it? He says, yes, if there are 40 righteous persons in the city, I will spare it. He says, Lord, if I, let me just talk to you again. I know I'm but dust, but what if there are 30? Would you spare it for 30? And he says, I will not destroy it if there are 30 righteous persons. And he said, Lord, just another time. What about if there are 20? And he said, if there are 20, I will not destroy the city. 
And he says, one last time, Lord, if there are ten, he said, if there are ten, I will not destroy this city. And we know the story. There weren't ten. And the city was destroyed. And only Lot and his two daughters were saved. His wife was being saved. She was brought out, but she turned back and became a pillar of salt. So we see that God's patience can be exhausted. It was exhausted for a country, and it was exhausted for a city, and it was also exhausted for a corrupt king. Acts chapter 12, verse 21 through 23, we see King Herod. The Scripture reads, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. A corrupt king. Well, some people say, hey, you know, these are, these are believers. We're different. We're in a New Testament age today. God's still patient with us. He's not going to judge us in that way. I would encourage you to look at your Bible closer. Look at the book of Acts chapter 5, with the example of Ananias and Sapphira. These were individuals who claimed Christ. Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 11 documents it. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back a portion for himself, some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and after and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether or not you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the spirit of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So we can see here that our being a Christian in no ways nullifies God's patience or judgment. So we see here it's for Christians as well. And that's not the only documented instance. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in Paul's description of the Lord's Supper, he says, some of you have taken it in an unworthy manner. That is why some of you are weak and ill and some have died. When we continually disregard God's commands and we throw down His Word and disregard it, God will not be disregarded. As Galatians says, God will not be mocked by anyone. By anyone that it's for believers, for Christians as well. God can have, will have His patience exhausted even with Christians. And last but not least, we can see God's judgment extend to a couple. A couple. And that's Ahab and Jezebel in our text for today. We read about a story that resulted in the death of a righteous man and ended up affecting an entire generation, an entire family. And we've seen over the several weeks that his life was filled with idolatry. He'd been given a myriad of chances to repent. Elijah had told him that it wouldn't rain except by his word, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then Elijah shows up, challenges Ahab's prophets of Baal to a showdown, which results in God sending fire from heaven. 
The death of four, all 450 prophets and Elijah praying and God making it rain. Even as the rain came across the land, I wonder what Ahab was thinking. I mean, he saw the 450 prophets being slaughtered. He should have been killed himself, but he wasn't. And then Elijah goes and prays, and he sends his servant, get up on your chariot, go home, because the rain is coming. And even as he was in his chariot, and he was whipping those horses furiously, and the rain just started as a trickle and became an immense downpour as the sky, which hadn't been dark with clouds for three and a half years, is now filled with storm clouds. I wonder what he was feeling and thinking in his mind. Even then, he didn't repent. Even though he was feeling the rain, he didn't repent. God had given him so many different opportunities to repent, but he didn't. So I'd like us to think about them for a moment, but I'd also like to transition and look at this righteous man named Naboth for a moment. Because his is a life that is directed by godly principles. His is a life directed by godly principles. This is a man who feared the Lord, who followed His Word. Remember, Ahab had his palace in Samaria, which was his capital. And next door, he had a vineyard. And he says, you know what? Uh, or Naboth had his vineyard. And he said, you know what? I'm going to offer you money, or I'll give you a different vineyard, a better one in return. You know what? From all looks and purposes of it, it looks like a reasonable deal, doesn't it? A reasonable deal. It's like, hey, this is a good, this is a good idea. It seems like a great business deal. Does it not? I can get a better vineyard. I can make some money off of it. But that's not what Naboth desired. See, he wasn't just directed by making monetary profit. He was directed by biblical principles. We look in verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 21. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. And after this Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. So it seems like a good deal. Ahab wants the vineyard. It's next door. Good deal. But God's word gave the land to the tribes to be theirs as a perpetual inheritance, according to Genesis 17, 8, Leviticus 25, 23, and Joshua 13, 1 through 7. They were not to sell it. So we see that even in Samaria, which had become apostate, Naboth, is following God's word. And he says, I can't do it. I can't give up the inheritance of my fathers. The word says, no, I can't betray them and I can't betray God. I care more about what God says than I do about what you say in this so-called reasonable deal. That's what verse 3 says. But Nahab said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. I can't disregard God's word that way in order to make a profit. See, Naboth's life was directed by godly principles, which leads to a righteous decision. He says, I can't do it. It's a righteous decision. He made, the, he made the right, righteous decision. There are so many things that we do in life that show we care more about making a more reasonable deal than we do about making righteous decisions. Business and our faith are not to be separate things. Some people like to separate them. I don't know how many of you have heard of the story of Truett Cathy. You may not have heard of him, but I guarantee you've heard of his restaurant, Chick-fil-A. Oh, yeah, now, now the mind is going, I've lost you. You're just thinking about lunch. But Truett Cathy is the founder of Chick-fil-A. He started the chain, and he opened the first Chick-fil-A in Hattonville, Georgia in 1967, and he was committed to building it around five principles. Number one, climb with care and confidence. Number two, create a loyalty effect. Number three, never lose a customer. 
And number four, put principles and people ahead of profits. And number five, closed on Sunday. It's pretty amazing to think about a businessman in this day and age doing that. On the last principle, Kathy writes, I was not so committed to financial success that I was willing to abandon my principles and priorities. One of the most visible examples of this is our decision to close on Sunday. Every single Chick-fil-A, without exception, is closed on Sunday. Our decision to close on Sunday was our way of honoring God and of directing our attention to things that mattered more than our business. Now, Chick-fil-A is the only major fast food restaurant chain to be closed on Sundays, one of the busiest days of the week in the restaurant business. Despite being closed on Sundays, Truett Cathy has led Chick-fil-A on an unparalleled record of 40 consecutive years of sales increases, with its core freestanding restaurants achieving higher sales per unit in six days with shorter operating hours than most major chains in the industry. Now, I, I full well understand that many work on Sundays, and I know that there is a disagreement about when the Sabbath actually is. Jews considered the Sabbath to be on Saturday, but when Christ rose on the first day of the week, many Christians looked at Sunday as the Sabbath. That's why we have a weekend. The Puritans couldn't figure out which one to do, Saturday and Sunday. But the important biblical principle is this, work six, rest one. That's the principle. Work six, rest one. And you see... Truett Cathy put his principles over prophets, and that's exactly what Naboth did. He said, I'm putting my principle of following God's word over prophets. Now, what did that result in? We understand it resulted in his death. And Ahab and Jezebel are judged accordingly. Now, I'd like to turn our attention and look at them for a moment because we're going to see them that they have lives that are driven by ungodly passions. Lives driven by ungodly passions passions. James talks about these type of ungodly passions in James chapter 4, 1 through 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's how it plays out. They have passions within them. They're at war, so they murder to obtain. Now, once Naboth refuses Ahab's request, Ahab heads home dejected and depressed. Such a change of behavior doesn't go unnoticed by even the worst of wives, and Jezebel was no exception. She asked him, she prods him, and Ahab explained everything to her. And she was, it was incredulous to her that the king would so easily give up on a common vineyard. She promised to get him for herself. Now we see that this unbridled passion and looking at her life will cause us to be restless. He's restless. He's, he can't rest about it, neither can she. They want something. He said, the text says he's vexed and sullen and depressed because he wants what he wants. It reminds me of the story of Amnon and Tamar in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 13, verse, 12, verse 2. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but Amnon was King David's oldest son, and he lusted after his half-sister Tamar. Matter of fact, the text says Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to, for Amnon to do anything to her. He's so tormented because he wants what he wants, 
He doesn't care about anything else. All he cares about is his passion and fulfilling his sinful desire. And we know that results in her being raped. And then he, it says that he hates her more than he ever loved her after that. Because see, it can't satisfy. Sin can't satisfy. It can for a moment, but then it, we want more. We always want more. doesn't matter what it is. We want more. It makes us restless. I'm reminded of the, the book, An Affair of the Mind, put out by Focus on the Family. I don't know if you've ever read the book. It's by a woman named Lori Hall. That's not even her real name. She wrote it as a pseudonym as she documents her story. It's a very hard book to read. It's very graphic. And it tells the story of one woman and her dealing with her husband's addiction to pornography. It's not for the faint of heart. He was a Christian man, a pillar in the church. He was a missionary kid. He worked in D.C. He had White House clearance. He was even on staff at a church for a period of time. Everybody loved him, but he was addicted to porn. Those who are addicted to porn don't ever stay there. It always goes further. It always goes deeper. It never stays because porn always wants more. Sin always wants more. She begins her story of getting an AIDS test. She's just a number because she found out that her husband would have been with a variety of different prostitutes. I mean, she, she, he had kept it hidden from everyone until finally it came out. It started taking over his life. She documents how it even began developing. He started working longer and longer hours, paying less and less attention to their, their son and their young daughter. And he would be with her on their phone and he would say, Honey, I'm going to be home for dinner tonight. I feel like I really should be there. And she'd say, Really? Are you serious? Are you going to be there? Because he kept coming home later and later. He says, I promise, honey. So she said, I would do everything to get everything, the house ready. I would clean it. I would put the fire in the fireplace. I would wear the dress that he liked so much. I would make his favorite meal. The kids would get all dressed up. They'd be waiting at the door, just waiting to see Daddy drive in to the driveway. Minutes, dinner came, dinner passed. Minutes became hours. The children said, I want to stay up and see Daddy as their little eyes were closing. They couldn't keep themselves awake. Five o'clock, six o'clock, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, one, two a.m. He comes home. Sorry, honey, I had to work late. So much he was filled with his sin that it started to take, take everything over. It started off with soft porn. When he was 18, and other pictures that he saw at the barbershop, then to R-rated movies, then to strip shows, and then to prostitutes. And once she realized that he was into porn and how bad his addiction was, she remembers sitting at his feet, pleading with him to quit, but his face was blank. He couldn't even formulate a sentence. It had totally taken over his mind. He couldn't communicate. His mind was imagining porn, even while his wife lay crying at his feet. It got so bad that she tells the story of him taking their young daughter on a business trip with him. He goes to the seamy side of town, parks the car, and tells his daughter he needs to go buy a toothbrush. He leaves his little daughter alone in the car, all alone, in a horrible side of town while he goes and visits a prostitute. Terrified, the little girls remember people walking back and forth throughout the car, breathless. She's scared. She's terrified. Finally, her father returns, and all she could say was, he didn't have a toothbrush. That's how bad sin takes us over. It makes us restless. And then it makes us ruthless. It makes us ruthless. See, look at Lori's, if you think of Lori's husband and Jezebel, they'd both become ruthless. To do that to your child, that is deplorable. But that's what it does. That's by sin by its nature. Don't listen to the TV shows that glorify it and they say it's all funny and it's, it takes over. It destroys lives. 
It terrifies families. And I know that there are men in our church that struggle with this. I mean, it used to, you had to cross and go far away. Now it's a toggle click away. But Paul says, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality. For myself, I've taken that to mean, let there not even be a click. Not even a click. Don't go there. Don't go there. And, don't think, and most men say, well, I'm not going to look at porn. And you read a news article or a headline, and then it moves on to something else, and you go to Google Images, and, and then it keeps going on down. Don't even click the first time. Don't. The Scripture says that we have self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Don't give in to the lie of the devil. And you know what? The more that you resist, the more you're going to realize how much it is just ingrained and become a part of you. Becoming ruthless. Look what happened in verse 8 of our text for today. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she went and sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in the city. In his city, And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, set Naboth at the head of the, t- the, t- uh, of the people, and, ha- and then set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. That's exactly what happened. See, her ruthlessness led to unthinkable scheming. See, that's what happens. The, the pathway of sin always goes down. And it always wants more. People say, well, I can handle it. No, you can't. You can't. It's impossible to do. And I tell people, they say, well, I can handle it. And I say, try to stop. And they try to stop. And they said, well, I, I, you know, I could handle it any time. I'm just going to give in a little bit. You're not handling it. You're a slave. That's what the Scripture says, that we're slaves to sin until Christ sets us free of it. Leads to unthinkable scheming that she comes up with this concoction, this terrible scheme to bring about this death of a righteous man, even using religious ceremony to do it. How deplorable is that? Calling a service, it's a fast, it's a religious ceremony. And then kill that guy. Just to get a vineyard. It's amazing to think about. And her unbridled passion also leads to unnecessary suffering. Not only caused Naboth's death, but something else happened. See, God was paying attention. And not only would it bring about Naboth's death, but God's judgment would come decreeing Ahab and Jezebel's death. I want to show you a video right now that shows how one's per, one person's choice infected, infected an entire family. In this video, you're going to see a car accident where a girl was hurt. You're going to see, uh, and throughout the video, you're going to see her family. You're going to see her father and her mother. Her father is at his desk. Her mother is doing the dishes. And then you're going to see what happens. You're going to see a flashback. First, you're going to see the crash itself. And then you're going to see the crash as it occurs. And I want you to pay attention what happens to her family as you see this video. I open my eyes, I try to see, but I'm blinded by the white light. I can't remember how, I can't remember Lying here tonight And I can't stand the pain And I can't make it go away No, I can't stand the pain 
everybody's screaming. I try to make a sound, but no one hears me. I'm slipping off the edge. I'm hanging by a thread. I want to start this over again. So I try to hold on to a time when nothing mattered and I can't explain what happened and I can't erase the things that I've done. No, I can't. What you saw there was a man who made a dumb decision and he drove drunk. Not only did his choice affect him, it destroyed that young girl's life, but as you saw what happened to the family is the father, the mother, the brother, and the sister. See, his one act destroyed not her life, but her whole family. See, sin by nature destroys. And that's what we see what happens in Jezebel's life. She doesn't just destroy Naboth's life. She destroys her own in the process. And that's what that guy did when he drove drunk. That one dumb mistake. He not only destroyed her life and her family's, he destroyed his own. Now see, Lori Hall even tells the story in the book that I was mentioning before, An Affair of the Mind, that it not only destroyed her life, but her husband's. He was making so many, I mean, a, had a really good job, had a really good salary, and said because of his addiction to pornography, he lost everything. He lost his job, he lost his family, and he's working in a factory of minimum wage, just going through, filling different bags with candies. See, sin destroys. And God will have His patience exhausted. When we continue on in sin, God finally says, enough is enough. I've given you enough warning. I've sent you my word. I have told you through many different pastors and teachers and believers. And you continually exhaust it. So we can see not only that God's patience is exhausted, but we can see that the decisions that we make will determine the path we take. 
The decisions we make. See, the decisions she made determined the path that she took. Look at verse 17 with me. Chapter 21. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishmite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your, lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. Enough is enough. I will utterly burn you up. And you will cut off from Ahab every male bonder free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the first king in Israel's history, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. And then verse 25 says something very startling. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. He led all these people into sin. His choice affected them all. Now let's stop here for a moment. What do we do when the Lord decrees or brings to us a message of judgment? We're faced with two possibilities. The first is retribution. We'll receive retribution. Or we can act in repentance. Those are the two choices. There are no other. There isn't anything else. Retribution or repentance. Now we know for a fact that Jezebel didn't repent and she did receive God's retribution. We see this being played out in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30 through 37. When some of the the when Yehu comes to Jezreel and Jezebel heard heard about it and he had killed his uh, king in order to become king himself. And he sees her, she had paints her eyes, she gets all dressed up. She says to him, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? He lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him and he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. She has a terrible death because she had a terrible life. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spake or spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite in the territory of Jezreel. The dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be his dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel so that no one can say this is Jezebel. She has a horrible end to her life. God brought the judgment that he had decreed. But what did Ahab do? He's the wickedest man in Israel's history. The wickedest king. He led all the nation in rebellion and idolatry to God. But look what he did in verse 27. And this is what's surprising. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Ahab repented. 
Yes, the wicked king Ahab, who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, unlike any before him, he repented. Repented before the Lord. See, even after declaring God's judgment, God was ready to relent. On seeing Ahab's response, the word of the Lord came to Elijah again. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? That's amazing to think about. That God would even spare Ahab. See, it doesn't matter how wicked you've been, what you've done, that if you're willing to repent, God sees that. That God will cast no one out if they come to Him in humility and repentance. It doesn't matter what you've done. God gave His life for you. That's amazing to think about. Some people say, I'm even afraid to come to church. The roof will cave in. I've heard that. I say, no. God loved you while you were still yet His enemy. He died for you. It's an amazing thought. I mean, some of us would think about dying for our children, or would we think about dying for a close friend, but to die for our enemy. I think about a Jew that would go through the camp at Auschwitz, and to think about someone who was having lost their entire family, and then say, would I die for Adolf Hitler? It's incomprehensible. It's inconceivable to our mind to think that someone would do that for someone who was our enemy like that. But that's exactly what Jesus did. That He saw us as we were His enemies and still chose to die for us. So what's the thought? What is the take home? What is I want you to take home and apply to your lives is this. Don't continue on in sin. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will also reap. The Bible says that it doesn't speak in terms of tomorrow for repentance, but in terms of today. 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 Repent. Repent. And believe me, you might say, I'm a Christian. I got it all taken care of. I'm eternally secure. You need to read your Bible again. Not saying that you're not eternally secure, but that doesn't mean that you're going to stave off God's judgment. Look at Ananias and Sapphira. Look what happened to them. That God's patience will be there, but it, will, it can be exhausted. Don't play with Almighty God. You can try to hide your sin and say, I'm going to hold on to sin and I'm going to do this. God's not mocked. He knows. And He will bring you to the end of yourself. He will keep sending warnings into your life to get your attention. It could be for a variety of different things. It might be whatever the wake-up call you need to have. But when it comes, answer it. Don't disregard God's calling to you. Let's close our message time and prepare our hearts as we get ready to enter into communion, the Lord's Supper, together. Let's pray. Father, we come before You knowing that You are a loving God. You are the patient God. You are the forgiving God. And You will forgive anyone who comes to You in repentance and faith. Lord, we know whoever comes to You, You will by no means cast out. And there are some here today Lord, that have still holding on to their sin, that have not surrendered themselves, that say that they would rather hold on to their sin, to do life their way. Lord, we know that the song on the way to hell is going to be, I did it my way. Lord, we pray that you show them that you are the one true way, that you are the God who cares, the God who loves us, the God who was stricken and afflicted for us, the God who was striped and pierced for our sins because you loved us so much. You you bowed down and received that that whip on your back, that you laid your arms down to the nails, Lord, because you loved us. So Lord, I pray if there's someone here today that has not yet trusted in you, that you will show them that you are the God who saves. And Lord, I pray that you do save them.
as you have promised in your word to do. Save them from your wrath. Save them from sin. And Lord, for those that are here that are trifling, that are playing with sin, I pray that you bring them to the end of themselves. They might experience great conviction by your spirit and they might not hold on any longer, but repent. Lord, if they're, they're caught in a, in a sin of porn or whatever it may be, Lord, I pray that they might repent, turn from you and make the necessary changes in their life to walk closely with you. Lord, glorify yourself in our midst today in our communion time. In Jesus' name, amen.